You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening again. Don't forget, you can help out the show by leaving us a five-star rating and a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Digging Oak Island. Well, folks, we did it. We made it through another long off-season. Let's face it, this was probably the toughest off-season we could ever have imagined. Uh, Now we can look forward to, you know, five months or more of new episodes of The Curse of Oak Island. And I have to say, this week, the History Channel aired one truly great night of television for me. Uh, Yes, this season is going to be different from the last few, but if this week's debut episode is any indicator, it's not going to be any less exciting. Before we talk about the actual episode, though, let's discuss for a minute the pregame show, so to speak, which aired right before it. This was another of these drilling down shows hosted by Maddie Blake. We've seen many of these over the years. And this one was really intended to be just sort of a giant teaser or a trailer, you know, for the upcoming season. As I was watching it, I wondered to my wife why they didn't air this last week (laughs) when it might have been even more of a kind of an excitement builder for the fans. I mean, it really did do a great job of getting us all salivating for what's to come, if not offer any real information for us. Anyway, let's talk about it. I'm sorry, as you can probably hear, I'm fighting some allergies, but uh, maybe we can get our way through it. Uh, The show begins, this drilling down show, with Maddie Blake entering the war room on Oak Island, where we hear the first of many discussions to come about how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the hunt and the work the team is trying to do this year. For example, we we only have a few of the cast here sitting around this table as opposed to in past seasons when you have all of the guys just packed in shoulder to shoulder around this table. Marty mentions how even though the pandemic has really impacted the team, he believes some projects and discoveries happened during this season, which might not have happened had it not been for the changes made due to the COVID pandemic. And you quickly see what he means. It's clear that instead of turning their attention to the kinds of huge and expensive projects we've seen over the recent seasons, the team is definitely spending this year focusing on what I would say is the expertise of really smart and talented folks they've brought onto the island and into this fellowship. The remainder of this first segment here of the show It's really just kind of a giant teaser for what we're going to see in the coming weeks. Alex Lagina discusses how they discovered some new information with regards to the Smith's Cove structures found a couple seasons ago. Plus, they talk about plans to continue work in the swamp and even at a new site, which we're going to talk about a lot more in just a bit. They also point out how this year they now have three archaeologists on the island, although it does seem like there's four. But be that as it may, they're referring to Laird Niven and two new ones who we're going to talk about. I have to admit, I mean... From my point of view, this really gets me pumped up for sure. I love the idea of really focusing in on the archaeology. The second segment of the show focuses on the money pit, and we have a lot of talk about the chapel vault and the potential of a big dig. Steve Guptel, the surveyor, shows a 3D model they created of the money pit area, which shows us just literally dozens and dozens of drill holes, which he says go down to about 130, 140 feet, and then after that is what he calls virgin ground, in quotes. So what are they talking about here? Well, let me explain. If you've been listening to our off-season podcasts, you would have heard all about the quote-unquote collapse of the money pit, which occurred in the middle of the 19th century. 
every team drilling and exploring in the money pit after that incredible collapse have all been trying to figure basically the same thing out. What happened to the treasure as a result of this terrible catastrophe? Where did it all go? Now, without getting too much into it, the basic idea here in this show and this scene is that the Fellowship is picking up where 150 years of explorers have left off. Guptal says that according to what his plotting tells him, if there is going to be a big dig, it would likely have to be a dig covering an area of 200 feet across and about 230 feet deep. (laughs) Not something any money man, especially Craig Tester, who is shown here, seems to be all that excited about. There was also uh, a mention of reopening the investigation into Borehole C1. This was the hole from season three, I think, um, the location of which was suggested by Charles Barkhouse. Now, after digging the hole, they sent down a camera and saw an object that looked like a piece of something shiny and gold. We all must remember that. We'll talk about that more when we get to the episode itself in just a few minutes. So hang on just a second. We're going to really get into C1 here. The third segment of the show, right after this commercial here, takes us to the swamp, where we see the Swamp Doctor, Dr. Ian Spooner of Acadia University, joined by Miriam Amaral, one of the two new archaeologists I mentioned earlier. Here we're told this year they discovered something important in the swamp they called, quote-unquote, definitively man-made, a structure of some kind that I think he said was 200 to 300 feet long. After the next commercial, we find Maddie Blake with Gary Drayton, who tells him this that this year they discovered the, quote, oldest artifact ever found on Oak Island. So like I said, there isn't a whole lot of new information to get from the show here. It's really just an hour-long trailer, but it was still fun to watch for sure and really got us sort of ready for what we were about to see. Let me quickly continue. In the next segment, Maddie meets with a third archaeologist, a man named David McGinnis, who... And this is just amazing, really, when you sit down and think of it. It's something like the great, 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 great grandson of the original money pit discoverer, Daniel McGinnis. And now (laughs) he's on the island as an archaeologist working on a discovery they call pre-1795, which involves something he refers to as fire-cracked rocks and, quote, unquote, a lot of burning. The term fire-cracked rock is an archaeological term that refers to any kind of rock used specifically for the purpose of really containing or holding fire or heat, you know, like the rocks used to make sort of a a hearth or a foundry or even a kiln. Keep that word in mind. You can also refer to um, rocks which you heat themselves so that they act as a kind of a long-lasting source of heat. Does that make sense? Sometimes you heat up a rock and then they can stay hot for a long time. You can use that heat for various applications. Basically, the idea appears to be that something industrial seems to have occurred here involving fire, (laughs) but Mr. McGinnis is going to feature prominently again in episode one, so let's just push this to the side also for a minute. We'll get back to it later. These are all just kind of teasers. But Finally, the show wraps up with Rick and Marty. This is a great conversation talking about this whole season we're about to see as, I think Rick says, quote, very shortened year. But still, they found more discoveries than in a normal season, they tell us. Now, is is that just hyperbole on their part? It might be, but we'll see. But it's Marty's comment about how he was, quote, astounded by the swamp 
that makes it quite a cliffhanger for sure. Regardless, what this episode of Drilling Down tells us for certain is that despite the challenges of COVID-19, we are going to get another compelling season of television. That's very exciting. Considering where we are, where kind of all of our collective thought processes were in the spring of this year, you know, in May area (laughs) when the last season ended, Um, you know, considering what we were thinking might be the worst case scenario for season eight, all of this really is great news for us. The other really fascinating kind of little offhand comment in this conversation at the end of Drilling Down came from Marty. When he was asked about whether this year's research moved the timeline of when this mystery actually took place, Marty said that the timeline might have instead been bifurcated. Now, what he means by that is that it's been divided. It's that the work done this year has clearly indicated, this is what I'm extrapolating here, two separate possible time frames for what they refer to as the when the original workings took place. Again, this is a great little tidbit of information and really can have us all thinking over the next few episodes. Hopefully we will kind of see clearly what he meant by that in the weeks and months to come. Many of us have pointed out how the all over the place this timeline can be with the discoveries we've had on the show over the past couple of years. Perhaps the team is now finally narrowing it down to at least two. Okay, let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about season eight, episode one of The Curse of Oak Island called Remote Control, which I assume was an attempt at a joke or at least a pun, I guess somehow dealing with video conferencing. I'm not really sure. The episode begins with scenes we saw in last week's first look, which we discussed during our preview podcast last week. It's later in June, I think around the 20th or so, and the Americans are stuck in Traverse City, Michigan in their business offices, hoping by some chance that the Canadian government might sort of lessen their COVID travel restrictions and allow the guys into Nova Scotia to take part in this year's hunt. Now, remember, folks, this is not in any way an exaggeration. At this point in June, about midway through what would really be midway through a normal search season, when treasure hunting and filming should have really been kind of fully in motion for weeks already, there was no way of knowing at that point whether Rick, Marty, Craig, Alex, and Jack Begley would ever actually make it to Oak Island at all in 2020. It appears they were prepared to not ever get there, but thankfully they eventually would. The guys are on a video conference call with the rest of the team, the the guys who live in Canada, and talking not only about their plans for the season, but also what the Canadians have done already. Like I said, this is mid-June or so, and and I'm curious as to whether there was really any filming done up to this point, meaning when we see the footage from this season, was was some of this work actually done before this meeting took place in June? The producers like to mess around a bit with the timeline for the show. So assuming they were able to get a Canadian film crew to Oak Island, that's probably a good bet that we're seeing some stuff that actually happened before this moment in June when we start the show. With that said, there isn't much purpose in talking too much about what we are hearing here on this call, as we'll no doubt discuss all of it (laughs) in future episodes, uh, even in the future of this episode. 
But there is one thing I want to mention specifically. One of the people doing a lot of talking in this call is the Swamp Doctor. Dr. Ian Spooner, professor of geology in the Department of Earth and Environmental Science at Acadia University in Nova Scotia. Now, about halfway through the episode, Rick and Marty, along with Alex Lagina and Peter Fernetti, are finally given, who is Rick and Marty's nephew, are finally given permission to enter Nova Scotia, with the requirement being that they spend two weeks in quarantine immediately upon entering the province. From this quarantine, the guys do another video call, this time from the war room or to the war room, where the Swamp Doctor gives them even more information about his plans for the immediate future of his work. Spooner talks about how he is most interested in getting a closer look at a possible anomaly, which he says is about 10 feet down under the surface, under the ground, uh, in the very southeastern corner of the swamp. So if you're looking at an aerial shot of the swamp, what we're talking about is sort of the bottom right corner of the triangle. They often refer to it as a cove sometimes here as well. Later in the show, Spooner mentions how he examined old overhead photos of the swamp. I believe he said the 1940s. And the narrator tells us that they came from Fred Nolan and Dan Blankenship, although I have to point out that neither Fred nor Dan were on the island in the 1940s, so they clearly didn't take these pictures. They just found them or had them in their files. Those old images pointed Spooner towards what he believes was perhaps a wall or some other kind of structure now hidden among the muck and whatever might be there. Remember, the team is working with the idea that this part of the swamp, the part sitting just a few feet back off the beach, just on the other side of the road from the beach, uh, was perhaps once a harbor or a wharf area some centuries ago for the island. Let me also say that I found some good electronic copies of these very same photos that the show shows us here, as well as one or two others, similar photos of the swamp from sort of the black and white era of photography. Now, I can't say I can tell exactly what he's referring to here, but it does look like there just might be something to this, something someone could interpret as out of place over in that corner. Sometime during, I believe, this second call that I mentioned while the Laginas are in quarantine, someone mentions how Fred Nolan believed he found the remains of an old shaft somewhere in the swamp, but that he never told anyone (laughs) where that supposed shaft was. I love this little tidbit about the man that Fred Nolan really was. For many, uh, Fred Nolan was a thorough treasure hunter, just not wishing to reveal his secrets like so many treasure hunters are. You know, that's just just the way they are. For others, he was a man full of (laughs) unsubstantiated claims and certainly something of an exaggerator of those claims. Here's just another small example of that dichotomy that was Fred Nolan. He saw a possible shaft in the swamp, but never told anyone where it is, and apparently also never wrote it down? I mean, you have to be kidding me, right? Anyway, I digress. Spooner is talking about bringing in some new sonar gear and trying to get a better idea of what might be there in this area of interest, and if it potentially is worth draining and digging the swamp once again. Now, later in the show, the swamp doctor is joined by diver Tony Sampson. Tony dons his wetsuit and then begins pushing Spooner, who's in this inflatable boat with his new expensive sonar gear, around this area of the swamp. Now, I don't understand what I'm looking at with the screen that's showing what the sonar is picking up. I don't really understand that. I kind of get an idea of what he's pointing at and stuff, but I don't really get the specifics of it. But according to Spooner, what he's seeing here is evidence of perhaps a wooden 
log or wooden logs, like a collection of wooden logs, kind of very shallow, just under the surface of where Tony's walking. And as Tony is walking along the floor of the swamp, he says he can feel something like that, you know, something under his feet. Then, apparently, the sonar also picks up something Spooner interprets as a possible wall. Now, he's pointing to this little dip there. Again, you kind of get the idea of what he's showing you, but you don't really get the specifics as to why he's concluding some of the things he's concluding. Needless to say, it looks like this is going to be another year of draining the swamp and digging in the muck. Okay, another uh, part of that video call from Traverse City, Michigan, we mentioned uh, that was at the beginning of the episode. We hear Doug Kroll talking with Rick, Marty, and Craig about how he was isolated on the island for four months. And during that time, he combed through Dan Blankenship's old files and research materials. Now, honestly, that really does sound like a great way to get through a quarantine (laughs) for an Oak Island nut, you know? Uh, Anyway, during this time, he came across two old pieces of information that are now leading them towards a new search area. One of these old pieces of evidence he found was an old survey done by Fred Nolan from before the time of the feud between Fred and Dan when they were still partners and working together on the treasure hunt. Remember, by trade, Fred Nolan was a surveyor, so he did a lot of this stuff himself. In fact, he did years and years worth of surveys of the island. The other is something called the Beringer Survey, which was a professional survey done in 1988. Weirdly, Doug said this work was never followed up on, mentioning that there was a phase two of the Beringer Survey proposed but never completed. Now, I have to say this really is something of a red flag to me. If these surveys, especially the Behringer survey, which was something someone, probably Dan, actually paid for. If these things actually showed potentially something of interest, man, Dan Blankenship just doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would have forgotten about any kind of follow-up plans, you know? It just seems weird. But be that as it may, these two pieces of information point the team towards two areas of interest. Lot 15, which we're going to discuss later, and Borehole C1. So let's head over to the Money Pit and talk more about the work done in this episode on Charles Barkhouse's famous namesake borehole. Now, as I mentioned, the whole C1 is from 2015, where a small camera was sent down and came across some strange, tiny, gold-colored kind of hook-looking thing, which got everybody very excited. But in the long run, I believe the diver was sent down there and he could never find this nor extract it. This is kind of an ominous portent of things to come for this little uh, episode here. Charles Barkhouse and Doug Kroll head to the Money Pit area to speak with diver Mike Huntley about C1 and the possibility of taking a look down there again. Huntley lowers a new camera into the shaft, and I have to admit, it is a way better camera than the one used back in 2015. And this time, they find three, I think it was three, strange Things that I can only describe as gold-colored discolorations along the wall of the shaft. Now, even though these images are really clear and nice, it's still impossible to tell exactly what they are. We later learn that resident geologist Terry Matheson said to them that there is, quote, no known natural placement of minerals that would look like gold in anhydrite, end quote, anhydrite being what makes up the shaft, really the walls of the shaft. So it seems like it might be time to get wet here. To boot, when Mike Huntley dove down and see one back in 2015, he apparently, at least he recalls this during the show, 
got some metal detector hits right around the same area. Though, again, he was never able to recover anything or even see anything of interest from down there when he was in the hole. The team brings in a company called RMI Marine out of the Halifax area. Uh, the best way I can describe this company is they are underwater contractors who, as well, they say themselves, quote, specialize in diving and marine port services. Uh, basically, if you need someone to do things like underwater ship maintenance or repairs, to do some work on docks or wharfs, or even things like underwater recovery projects, those sort of things, you call in RMI Marine. Now, they bring a parade of trucks across the causeway, and in these trucks we see a big crane, a portable hyperbolic chamber, and even a team of paramedics to potentially help diver Tyler Newton in what is honestly a very dangerous mission. Frankly, I can't believe <laughs> anyone would suit up and go down there. Anyone in their right mind would go down a hole like that. I get panicky just thinking about the whole idea. The diver then gets lower down into C1. He reports a lot of what he calls reflections along the rock wall of the shaft, but neither he nor anyone watching the video monitor seem to find this gold discoloration they're looking for. Tyler then takes his knife, starts digging something out, and removes what looks for a quick second like maybe possibly a coin, or at least it's something shaped kind of like a coin. And then he drops it. <laughs> and then mutters an extremely appropriate expletive as he watches the thing drop out of his hand and <laughs> out of sight and further down into the shaft. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. He drops it. The weird thing is, we didn't seem to even get anything from Tyler Newton himself after the dive about what that might have been that he dropped. What was... What, what what did Tyler think of what he was holding in his hand before he dropped it? Did he get a good look at it himself before he lost it? What made him dig it off the wall in the first place? What color was it? Now, I simply have to believe those questions were asked of him. I mean, they had to be, right? But why didn't we get to see that conversation? Why didn't we get to see the answers to that question? If I were to make a completely uninformed and speculative guess as to why, it's because he didn't think... It was actually a coin or anything all that important. And the producers want us to go away from this scene thinking that maybe there was a coin down there. The diver brings up a bag full of other things he pried off the wall of the shaft, but nothing of any interest. Nothing gold, no coins, nothing. Once again, borehole C1 proves to be frustrating and elusive, a really elusive target for the team here over a course of many years now. What could that gold color along the wall be? We've seen shiny gold images twice now in C1, four or five of them. But after five years, two expensive underwater cameras and two even more expensive dives, and we still don't know what the heck that is. As Marty likes to say, I guess that's Oak Island for you. During the second hour of the episode, we see Doug Kroll and surveyor Steve Guptill heading up to the Money Pit area. What they're doing here is plotting the information from this Behringer survey I mentioned earlier. Now, just to review, this was a professional survey done on Oak Island uh, in 1988, which Doug Kroll found while combing through Dan Blankenship's old files. The result of this survey show what was interpreted as a possible tunnel running from the Money Pit area towards the northwest 
running right through or just past this borehole C1 and up towards this new feature being excavated on lot 15. Later on, after doing all this plotting, Guptel tells us that this area of lot 15, which we're about to discuss, is exactly 500 feet northwest of the money pit and 500 feet northeast of the paved structure in the swamp. Exactly 500 feet each way. I'm not sure what that tells us, what kind of info we can get out of that little fact, but anyway, there you go. Now, just for some perspective, lot 15 is on the northern half of the east side of the island. Um, it goes from just sort of like the beach there next to the swamp all the way up to the northern tip. Um, the furthest eastern boulder of Nolan's Cross sits on the very eastern edge of lot 13. So this area here, you know, with the money pit on one side, Nolan's Cross right there, the swamp right there, this area we're looking at here really is kind of right in the middle of the, all the action. Now, I already told you about archaeologist David McGinnis and his amazing connection to Oak Island. Uh, he is joined on, lot, on this Lot 15 project by another archaeologist, a man named Aaron Taylor, who, judging by his hat, is likely from Acadia University. Besides being the great, 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 whatever grandson of the original money pit discoverer, Daniel McGinnis, David is also an expert in the prehistory of Nova Scotia. Now, I'm trying like hell to figure out a way to get in touch with him because I've been looking for someone to talk about the pre-European settler era history of Nova Scotia. I've been trying to do this for an off-season podcast for ages. So, David, if you're listening, email me, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. I'd love to get you on the air. I don't have, we don't even have to talk about what you're finding on the show here. We can watch that ourselves. But I'd love to talk about the early history of Nova Scotia. Anyway, Taylor and McGinnis are excavating a strange stone feature discovered on Lot 15. And in this first scene, we see Laird Niven coming over to talk to them about what they have found so far. They report finding a few nails and also some charcoal. McGinnis says that the charcoal is exciting because it's a great way it can be that all of this can be dated. It can also possibly tell them perhaps when whatever the structure was maybe have burned down, right? And had been lost, so to speak. Uh, Aaron Taylor produces a nail, which Laird defines as a modern machine-made nail, just from looking at it. I guess this implication here is that this is evidence this area might have been looked over by searchers in the past and the not-too-distant past. It'd be interesting to see if any records of such a search show up here. I'm not aware of any myself, but you never know. My guess is, though, we'll, we will not see all of this in a follow-up, and that that really is a shame. What I would like to know here is, does this charcoal show a date from before the nails, these machine-made nails were made, right? If so, and apparently there are a bunch of these modern nails, what was going on here during this more modern era? To me, that's also incredibly important information. We only ever get to hear about the old stuff, you know? But updating search records is also very, very important to being able to tell the complete story of Oak Island. The presence of modern nails maybe tells us that someone in the not-too-distant past was on to something here, and I want to know what and why and who. And I want to know what they found, and I want to know what compelled them to look here. It's all just extra sort of pieces to the puzzle. Now, Taylor and McGinnis also find a piece of iron slag and soon begin to conclude what they are looking at here is evidence of blacksmithing or some sort of foundry. They call it, quote-unquote, a big operation. 
and remark how this was something they never expected to find on Oak Island, although I do find that a little hard to believe. More on that in a second. Later, we hear that blacksmithing expert Carmen Legg was shown some of this evidence and came up to the conclusion that this was from a former pine tar kiln, which she calls of English origin, dating from 1550 up until about 1620, although there is no information as to why he came up with those dates. They're just sort of thrown out there. Regardless, I'm hoping that sound I heard in the distance after hearing this was Joy Steele and Gordon Faber popping champagne corks. <laughs> okay, if you don't know what I'm talking about, let me explain. Researcher Joy Steele and marine geologist Gordon Faber are the authors of a book called Oak Island Mysteries Solved, The Final Chapter. Now, as I've said several times in the podcast, I have not read this book, at least not in its entirety. I now have it in my possession, and I started reading it, but I haven't finished it yet. So I don't want to say too much or offer really kind of a review of what they're saying or my opinions on it or anything like that. What I can do for you, though, is kind of summarize the theories presented in the book, at least with regards to how it relates to this particular discussion and this scene from the show. To really distill it down. I mean, maybe even a little too much. The basic idea here is in this book, there is no treasure. There is no money pit. What happened on Oak Island was not about hiding pirate gold or valuable religious artifacts or anything like that. Their theory is one of a sort of lost history of North America and also the British Navy, really. It includes a clandestine 18th century British naval industrial site built on Oak Island called a tar kiln, also referred to as an earth kiln, here referred to as a pine tar kiln, and these are used to make what were called naval stores. Now, what are naval stores? Well, back before copper sheathing became the best and most widely used way to keep barnacles and other growth from forming on and thus destroying the bottoms of ships, and we still use copper sheathing or copper to some degree now, pine tar was really the way to go. It was really kind of ubiquitous in the maritime world, and it was employed in all sorts of naval applications. Oak Island was, according to Steele and Faber's conclusions, a secret site used to produce this tar. Now, why it's secret and all that, you have to read the book for that, and we'll get to that later on down the road. To have the team find evidence of a tar kiln, their experts identify and agree that that is what it is we're looking at. And then have this story make it to the airwaves had to be something of a, I guess, a bittersweet triumph for Steele and Faber, although I don't want to speak for them. I say bittersweet because these two have been working with this theory and working on this theory for years now and have really all been ignored by the Laginas and Prometheus. Now, let me add this. I'm not saying I necessarily agree that their theory is correct. I haven't reached that conclusion yet. All I'm saying is that this is the first bit of evidence the show has ever presented to us backing up the possibility of this theory. So it had to be a big moment for these two who have dedicated so much to it. And it also leads me back to what I said before about how I find it hard to believe that they were completely not ready for to find something like this on the island. All they had to do was read this book and they should have at least had it in the back of their minds, right? Hopefully, as the season progresses, we can learn more about this, how it relates to Steele and Faber's theory, and perhaps even, I've been trying to do this, get Mr. Faber on the podcast to talk about it. Let's see. Again, it's only one episode, right? It's only the first episode of the season, so let's not try to draw too many conclusions just yet. Let's keep watching and see what we come up with. Now, Laird Niven makes an interesting ob observation, saying the pine tar kiln, quote, ties together the paved structure in the swamp and what we were finding in Smith's Cove. 
So let me put it a different way and interpret it the best way I can. I think what he is saying is that perhaps the paved structure and the wharf were employed in this quote-unquote big operation. This apparently large and industrial size, well, at least industrial size for its time, foundry site or kiln. If one were producing a lot of pine tar, I would imagine <laughs> one would also need a wharf and perhaps a reasonably stable way to move carts and heavy barrels around what was likely a boggy and swampy part of the island. Seems logical enough to me. Now, the other question that they're all asking here, but it seems unanswerable at this point, is does the discovery of a pine tar kiln add to the evidence of the possibility that someone buried a treasure on Oak Island? Now, Rick says perhaps the tar was used to waterproof the money pit, but man, oh man, that, that seems like a stretch at this point to me, doesn't it? But again, let me repeat, it's only episode one, so let's just sit tight on this for a bit see what else is uncovered and what other information we get about this kiln. Now, later on in the episode, we're back at lot 15, and, and this time we have Gary Drayton and Jack Begley heading over with what was, I guess, a new metal detector, the wonderfully named OKM EXP 6000. Every time they said that, I thought of Kramer and Newman buying the Commando 450 showerhead, right? Thing that was made to clean elephants, but that they wanted for, to increase their water pressure. Anyway, I digress. The OKM EXP 6000 can apparently detect objects down to nearly 70 feet, and it also contains something called a tunnel sensor, which can be used to, quote, detect hidden tunnels, chambers, cellars, shelters, caves, and many other cavernous targets, end quote. And folks, for about 25000 bucks, you too can be the proud owner of your very own OKM EXP 6000. Gary and Jack are over in lot 15 running this tunnel scanner and metal detector. All happens at the same time, I suppose. Remember, this is where their newly recovered research, specifically an old map produced by Fred Nolan, is telling them they might find an uh, old tunnel entrance or entrance to a shaft or something like that. So the two guys are running a grid pattern along the ground with this OKM EXP 6000 to see if this so-called tunnel sensor can, in fact, pick up the presence of something that looks like a cavity or tunnel that Fred Nolan might have found underneath this area, which is now being worked by the archaeologists. So they can't just dig. They have to let the archaeologists do their thing. While searching, they come across another strange deposit of rocks in the woods on the surface, which Gary calls a stone structure, uh, which to them looks like just maybe some kind of unnatural circular pattern of rocks in the ground indicates something went hap happened here, you know. S strangely... <laughs> They never tell us if the OKM EXP 6000 actually ever detects a tunnel or not. I don't know. They just sort of forget about that. Instead, while looking at the results of their scan, Gary is more interested in indications of possible metal that it's showing. So he grabs his old metal detector and Jack goes and gets himself a shovel. <laughs> the two guys come across a piece of iron, which Gary identifies as the broken head of an old axe. He then claims that it might be an axe used by someone working on a ship's rigging, although it really isn't clear to me, and I've tried looking all this up, uh, why he thinks this axe that he found has a maritime application in particular. I mean, it just kind of looks like an old axe to me and nothing more than that, but be that as it may, he moves on to finding yet another item, and this time it's something the size and shape of a coin with a square hole punched right through the middle of it. 
Gary is certain it is a coin, and he is obviously very excited about it, and for good reason. Folks, do a quick Google search for coins with square holes in the middle of it, and you will find a long history of coins looking just like this one. The Chinese, of all people, made and used just such a coin literally for thousands of years, dating back to, you know, the B.C. era. That's why in the Talking head segment, you hear Gary say things, although he's being nonspecific. He's saying things like it's, quote unquote, not European and that it might be from someplace, quote, much more exotic. He knows what he's talking about here and he knows what this is. Now, I paused and stared at the screen for quite some time, looking at the at this image of this coin with the purpose of trying to find something that looks like it had Chinese writing, um, or at least some other way to identify it. He's, I think he talked about some kind of pattern or some kind of writing, but I couldn't really see anything. But like I said, I can only imagine that over the years of treasure hunting, Gary has come across quite a few of these, you know, so I trust his instincts here. This is certainly his area of expertise. If you remember in the trailer from season eight, we heard someone talking about a Chinese cash coin that might be 11, 12, or 1,300 years old, or older, I think they said. This coin found here is clearly what they're referring to. This is exciting stuff for sure. An ancient Chinese coin on Oak Island in Canada. It's unbelievable. I have to admit, though, my excitement kind of dampened just a bit on as this episode ended with... Honestly, one of the most bizarre scenes I can ever remember from the show. With all the fanfare usually associated with Gary and his finds, he calls up the Laginas on a video conference. Remember, they're still in quarantine. And then instead of showing them this potentially incredible find, he decides not to and instead make them wait until they're allowed on the island to see it up close for themselves. It's a bizarre scene to me for two reasons. One being just how staged it all looks. Say what you will about the show, folks, but they usually do a pretty good job of at least keeping up the appearance of a quote-unquote reality show. But the other reason it was weird is, why would he do that? What's the point? So strange. It really took me by surprise and set off alarm bells in my head, almost like for some reason he didn't actually have it in his pocket. But uh, I don't know. Before I cast aspersions, let's wait and see what next week's episode brings. I have to tell you, I've mentioned this at the top. Honestly, what a great night of television this was. Our friend Eric on Facebook commented to me, quote, they dump a ton of info on us last night. Not your normal curse episode with tease one tidbit for a whole episode. I couldn't have said it better myself, Eric. Between both the pre-show and the two-hour episode, there was just so much great stuff to process and think about. You know, the Chinese coin is an amazing find. Think back to when... Gary said at some point, I think in the drilling down, that they found the oldest thing ever found on Oak Island. That could this this coin is probably what he's referring to. I can't wait to see if they can clean it all up and get a really good look at it. And I know we only saw a few minutes of the swamp in episode one, but remember, Marty Laginas said at the end of that drilling down show that the swamp really was the place that he got most excited about. Not the coin, not lot fifteen, the swamp. So despite the find of, a, of an ancient Chinese uh, cash coin, that's not the most exciting thing in, in Marty's mind. It's the swamp, which we have yet to see a whole lot of. Like I said before, 
if we were worried about a lack of stuff for the pro- production company to work with in this season, this episode seems to have put many of those worries to rest. If the remainder of the season is anything like this one episode, this is going to be a great ride. And I have to admit, it really is my kind of stuff. Building huge dams and digging crazy big holes are all very exciting and cool to watch, but I like the science. I like the archaeology, the history, and especially the theorizing. And it looks like these are the things that the team will focus on this year. The Curse of Oak Island seems to be, how do I put it, kind of kicking it old school this time, right? Go back and watch the first couple of seasons again. It appears that season eight is shaping up to look a lot more like season two than like season seven. Now, Sam on Facebook also asked me a question that I got a lot this week. He wrote, interesting that, quote, interesting that Dave Blankenship was not seen at all in the two-hour premiere and no mention of him. Did I miss something? Sam, I noticed that too. And honestly, so did my wife who asked about a half hour into into this worst Dave. Uh, For some reason, I have it in my head. Now, I could be wrong, but I have it in my head that he said somewhere last year, whether it be on the show itself or maybe somewhere else in an interview or something, that he was going to kind of step back a bit from the show. And really step back from the treasure hunt, too, now that his father is gone. I'm not aware of any other specific reason we didn't see him. I think he's fine, as far as I know, and he's still living on the island. I just think he's going to going into something of a retirement, I guess. If I learn anything else about that, I'll let you know. But again, I don't think there's anything to worry about. Dave is a character for sure. And everyone I've ever known who's met him talks about what a great guy he is and how funny he really is in person. And how genuine he is to what you see on the show, you know. Perhaps it was, and I kind of get this feeling that it was those characteristics, that great sense of humor, the, you know, the kind of trucker language <laughs> and, the, and a real genuineness to him that made him maybe more part of the show than was initially planned or that he ever really wanted. You know, like uh, the 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 producers come and they shoot some scenes with Rick and Marty and then Dave happens to be in there and they're all like, wow, this is the guy we want to see. He's just great and he's just very compelling. He really is. Again, I'll ask around, but as far as I know, I don't think there's anything to worry about. I think Dave just kind of wants to kind of take a break from this. Next week we have episode two, but we also have the long-anticipated debut of a new series called Beyond Oak Island, starring our friends Rick and Marty Lagina. This was a show the History Channel had scheduled for the spring of 2020, if I'm not mistaken, and and even ran a few promos for it back then. But then the COVID-19 pandemic kind of stepped in and put it on hold. Now, here is how the History Channel describes what we're finally going to see next Tuesday after The Curse of Oak Island airs. Quote, From pirates such as Blackbeard and outlaws like Jesse James to Aztec gold, priceless historical artifacts from American history and sunken treasure ships, Beyond Oak Island digs deep into the many treasure quests across the globe, revealing amazing new details and clues from past searches, and in some cases, advancing the hunt. Needless to say, (laughs) looks like we're going to have a lot to talk about next week as well. So that's going to do it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Please subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you do enjoy the show, please do us a favor. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen. Uh, For some reason, that helps get the word out on the show. And and you know what? Truth be told, 
for the for this year I've been doing this for free and I'm hoping to, <laughs> to maybe get some advertising dollars in here. Hopefully nothing that's too um, you know, too distracting for you the listeners, but I'm trying to get some ads on here so we can maybe offset some of the costs associated with uh, you know, posting this stuff, creating the podcast, doing the research, all that kind of stuff. It costs time, it costs money. And and I would like to um, sort of raise a few funds. And if we can do that through advertising, the best way is to get the word out on the show, get more ears to the show, and you can help by doing that rating and review. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. Just go there and put an at Diggin' Oak Island uh, into your search bar and you'll find us. Give us a like there. That would be very much appreciated. And if you have any questions or comments about the show or about the Oak Island treasure hunt, you can send them directly to me at via email at diggingoakisland at gmail.com. And just keep in mind, if you send me an email, I'll probably answer it on the show. If you don't want it answered, make sure, at least you don't want it talked about on the show, make sure you make a note of that. You can also DM me or Tweet me any questions or anything you want on uh, on social media. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Mm-hmm.